Well, to begin with, I want to have you learn an acronym uh, to start with. And uh, I've had a few people asking me about this even throughout the last couple of days, and, and we'll get to that in a minute. But some of you love acronyms, right? Uh, my wife particularly hates acronyms. She thinks in the Christian world that we have way too many of them, and we use them uh, in different ways. And so you see it there on the bottom corner. So it's JGSP. Can you say that with me? JGSP. That was pretty feeble. Um, But that's okay. So turn to your neighbor and say that, J-G-S-P. Just turn to your neighbor right where you are. Yeah. Okay. So now I want you to just sort of lock that in. You know, take, you might take a screenshot of that, you know, uh, you might, you know, get a tattoo made or something, uh, maybe a, you know, custom license plate. I don't know what you need. Something to kind of remember that. Okay. And now we're going to come back to that later. So just park that for a minute. Can you handle it? Okay. We'll come back. So we are talking about money, and uh, sometimes people wonder about why we talk about money in the church, and I've had people uh, say that and question that, you've heard that, maybe you've been one of those people who kind of wonders that, they feel, some people feel like it's uncomfortable talking about money, and sometimes people feel that the church only wants people's money, and that we talk about it too much. I would actually be of the contention that we don't talk about it enough. I actually think that we need to talk about money more, and here's why. Let me unpack my argument a little bit. Jesus talked about money more than any other topic. As you look at his teachings and as you read through the New Testament and you even look at his parables, more of his parables had to do with money than anything else. More of his teaching had to do with money than anything else. If you look at the balance of topics in all of Scripture, Old and New Testament, there is more Scripture on money than any other topic. And so money is a very prevalent thing that we see throughout Scripture in lots of different ways. And, and the reason that Jesus talked about it so much is that he knew that if there was one thing that was going to contend for our hearts, there was one thing that had the possibility of being an idol in our lives, it was this area of money and the reality of money in our lives. And there's probably fewer things that can distract us in our Christian faith and distract us in our discipleship of following Jesus than this draw of money and the influence of, of money in our lives. And so it can lead us down different paths. And, and we all make choices about money all the time, every day. And so we set out different pathways, whether we realize it or not. We have patterns of how we think about money, patterns of how we handle money. And we can have unhealthy patterns. We can have healthy patterns. And so the decisions that we make around money really matter because they set us down a path that takes us somewhere. And so for some, it's a path that leads to destruction. And so that's why we need to choose our paths carefully. And part of how we do that is by talking about it more and understanding it more and realizing that it is so critical for our discipleship. So besides those good reasons, uh, let me just make it personal for you. you. You talk and think about money all the time, don't you, if you're honest? I mean, we all do. It's, it's pervasive in our lives. It's natural. Whether you're thinking about or you buy a $5 latte or whether you get an oil change for your car or whether you make a mortgage payment or whether you're going to buy groceries, you're, you're thinking in some way, maybe it's subtle, but you're thinking about money. You're doing and making decisions about money every single day, continuously, all the time. And so money is very prevalent in our lives. We know that. So we need to choose our paths wisely. 
Culture talks about money all the time. Look at this chart, for those of you who like these charts. Here's the Dow Jones for the last year. Okay, so this goes from February to February. This, is, this uh, screenshot was taken, I think, two days ago. Look at the right side that I circled. That is falling off a cliff. Why? Coronavirus around the world. Fear and uncertainty. And here we have this massive drop of the Dow Jones in just a couple of days. So our culture is talking about money all the time. This affects all of us in different ways. And so money is prevalent uh, in all kinds of ways in our lives. If you're married, money is one of the number one things that you fight about. Did you know that? Yeah, you did know that. Research shows that uh, there are two things that are predominant in a marriage that you fight about. Money and in-laws. For Lisa and I, we didn't fight about money. (laughs) Now we love our families. 30 years later. But the reality is, is that if you're married, you, it is, and, and research does show that money is the number one thing, actually, that, that couples fight about. If you're not married, if you're single, you maybe don't fight about money, but you still, for all the reasons that I just talked about, you still uh, are, are needed to make decisions about money, and you actually need to talk about money. So even if you're single and you're not fighting about money necessarily, you actually need places like the church that is talking about money so that you have a context to do that in, in a way that is helpful and healthy and biblical. And so that's, again, why I think it's so important that we are thinking and talking about money. It's critical whether you own a business, manage a budget, want to buy something, on and on. So you get the point. Thinking and talking about money is absolutely critical to our discipleship. Jesus knew that. Scripture reveals that. So whether you're young, old, rich, poor, married, single, working, retired, it's one of the most important things in faithful discipleship. And so we're in this series called Kingdom Economics. And we want to talk about money and economics in the context of the kingdom of God. We know that there are competing kingdoms. Jesus teaches that. We know that the enemy, the the kingdom of darkness, uses things like money to steal, kill, and destroy in people's lives all the time. Money in itself is not evil. Money is neutral. Money can be used for good purposes, for bad purposes. Jesus encourages us, Paul encourages us to use money for God's kingdom purposes all the time, as we'll see today. But the enemy also wants to use money for dark kingdom purposes as well. And so that's why we're talking about this in terms of kingdom economics. And a a couple of weeks ago, a few weeks ago, Maureen started the series off and she talked about this basic foundational fact that everything belongs to God. And that's a foundational truth in this kingdom economics. Last week, uh, Kevin spoke more about the kingdom aspect and to understand more broadly about what the kingdom of God is like and the influences and the places that we see that throughout Scripture uh, about the kingdom. And so we want to pick up today on two chapters in 2 Corinthians. And I encourage you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 9. We're going to look at those two texts today where Paul gives us a front row seat to the lives of some of these early believers, and he is celebrating what they have done, but more so he's celebrating what God is doing in them. And so Paul gives us this front row seat to these people uh, in Macedonia, and also the church in Corinth, and we'll get to that in a minute, and the understanding of the two, And and he's showing us and revealing to us how they have been absolutely transformed by Jesus. 
And that their transformation is evidenced in how they are handling their money. And so 2 Corinthians chapter 2, or 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9 are the two texts that we're going to primarily look at today. Because they give us some of the most foundational, important texts for, for New Covenant ideas about money. Now we know that there are Old Testament and Old Covenant laws and understandings of money, such as the tithe. And we're actually going to talk about that next week. We're going to look next week and go back to the Old Covenant and look at the tithe and some of these things that were foundational principles in the law of Moses and how we are to understand them today. But I wanted to start today by looking at New Testament and New Covenant teaching and start there where, where the Apostle Paul is teaching in this way about what does it mean to live by the grace of Jesus Christ and these New Testament principles in our giving. So I think these chapters are insightful, they're inspiring, and they're so helpful to understand how do we live under the grace of Jesus and not under the law of Moses. So first, some context. Uh, Corinthians, uh, the letters of Corinthians are written to the church in Corinth. Uh, you, you know that. And so 2 Corinthians is one of the letters that, that Paul wrote. Um, and he's writing to this church in the city of Corinth. Uh, 2 Corinthians is a very personal letter. It's one of the most personal letters that Paul writes. It's like, some have called it, it's like a theology of the flesh, where Paul is just writing from a very personal place, and he's writing about really personal, raw things that are going on in his life, and he's he's speaking very pointedly and passionately and very vulnerably, like he's really transparent and raw. But he's also talking to these people who are experiencing very uh, difficult times in their lives as well, too. So it's a very personal kind of text. Corinth is, is kind of like a boom town. It's a town that's very independent. Uh, it has a lot of wealth. It's a place of major uh, uh, economic activity that is happening there. Uh, sometimes it's helpful to think, think of Calgary in boom times when oil and gas is really high and when Calgary or Alberta is just, has been booming and some of you have lived there and so on. And it's this place, Corinth was like that. It was like this self-sufficiency, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, uh, independence, you kinda, everybody kind of is out for themselves and making, you know, making money and so on and so forth. And so that's some of the context that Paul is speaking to and speaking into to this church in the city of Corinth. And this is a church that has experienced lots of conflict and pain. And Paul's identifying with them and he too has experienced lots of conflict and pain. And you see that throughout all of Second Corinthians. It's just a theme, it's themes that are woven through that. He begins 2 Corinthians in chapter 1 by encouraging them to comfort one another. Because they've been going through so much, they've been experiencing so much hardship. And he says, you know what, by the same way that God has comforted you, you need to comfort other people. And then he goes on in chapters 2 to 4 and he says that you need to live your lives like a Christ-like fragrance. He says your, your lives are like human letters that are written on people's hearts. It's not like letters that are written on tablets of stone, but your, your lives are like human letters written on people's hearts. And, and so live that way. And he's challenging them to be this Christ-like fragrance and to live by the Spirit, the Spirit that gives life and freedom and to become more like Jesus. And he's, he's talking to them in these early chapters about the fact that even though your lives have experienced suffering and pain, that the light of Christ can shine out through the cracks. Even we all have cracks in our lives and brokenness and that the light of Christ can shine out in different ways and that's what he's challenging them to. And it's this beautiful, powerful language that 
is also so practical as he's helping them understand to move beyond the law of Moses, but rather now live with the freedom and the grace of Jesus. That the old is gone and that the new is here. That you are a new creation. He says our hearts ache, but we always have joy. We are poor, but we give spiritual riches to others. We own nothing, and yet we have everything. So that's what some of what proceeds. And then he comes to chapter 8 and, to nine, and chapter 9, and he, he almost uses a case study. And he, he uses a case study of these different people groups that have been transformed and so changed because of what Jesus has done in their lives. And he's holding them up in, in, in a light and saying, look at their lives. It's remarkable. So let's read, starting in chapter 8, verse 1 to 2. Paul says, Now I want you to know, dear brothers and sisters, what God in His kindness has done through the churches in Macedonia. They are being tested by many troubles, and they are very poor. But they are also filled with abundant joy, which is overflowed in rich generosity. So it's kind of interesting. So now catch this. He's writing to the Corinthian church. So this is written to the Corinthians. It's a letter to the church in Corinth. But he's writing about the churches in Macedonia, right? So he's saying, hey, hey, you need to pay attention. These churches in Macedonia are being absolutely transformed. And if you look at the region of Macedonia and what that entailed, it was cities like Thessalonica, like Philippi. And so we get letters like the Thessalonians, the letter to Thessalonians and the Philippians letter that are written to those churches. But that's the area of Macedonia that he's talking about. And so if you look at Philippians, and Philippians talks so much about the joy of Christ, So that's what Paul is referencing here. And he's saying these churches in Macedonia, like the Philippian church, or the church in Philippi, they are being transformed. They are very poor, but they have so much joy in the Lord that their lives are just flowing with generosity. It's quite remarkable. And so he's pointing to that and saying, like, you got to see what's happening here. And he's excited to tell this story and then to challenge this church in Corinth with this story. Then let's keep reading in verse 3 to 5. He says, for I can testify that they gave not only what they could afford, but far more. And they did it out of their own free will. They begged us again and again for the privilege of sharing in the gift for the believers in Jerusalem. They even did more than we had hoped. For their first action was to give themselves to the Lord and to us, just as God wanted them to do. I love that line, how they begged us again and again to give more. I've never had anybody say, you know what, we need to do another offering at the end of the service. Like, that wasn't enough the first time. Like, let's just send the buckets around again, you know, bring out the electronics, you know, like everybody go on your phones. And... But these people had just been asking, like, we want to give more. And it's almost like Paul had to shut them down and say, hold on, you're getting out of hand here. You need to calm down a little bit. You're giving so much that you actually don't have enough for yourself. So he's pointing to this privilege of giving that these people have gotten. And they wanted to give to the needy and the poor in Jerusalem. Now we don't know exactly what caused whatever is going on in Jerusalem at this time. We just know that there is a crisis there of some sort. There's an intense need. And they are wanting to contribute to this. And so that's what they're asking Paul. And this contribution is this collective contribution of many churches. It's an act of fellowship. That they're wanting to respond to grace together. And so Paul is taking up an offering and he's asking the churches to get ready to collect. If you look at other places in Scripture, like Romans 15, 
you, you get this reference to this offering being taken up to the church in Jerusalem again. And it comes through in a number of different texts. So Romans 15, verse 25 and 26. And this is Paul speaking to the church now in Rome. And he says, but before I come to Rome, I must go to Jerusalem to take a gift to the believers there. For you see, the believers in Macedonia, again, and Achaia, have eagerly taken up an offering for the poor among the believers, uh, for the poor among the believers in Jerusalem. In 1 Corinthians 16, a different letter that Paul's writing to this church in Corinth, he says a similar thing. He references this again. He says, now regarding your question about the money being collected for God's people in Jerusalem, you should follow the same procedure I gave to the churches in Galatia. On the first day of each week, you should each put aside a portion of the money you've earned. Don't wait until I get there and then try to collect it all at once. And so Paul, he's obviously calling these churches to give to this project in Jerusalem. It's a long-term relief project of some sort. We don't know the cause. We don't know a lot of the details of it. But it's clearly inter-church giving. It's this giving to something bigger. You might think of it, as I read this, I think it's sort of like today we have denominations and you have collections of churches and it's sort of like that where you have this denominational piece that's going on and these churches are now giving. And what's interesting is Jerusalem is the place where the church kind of started from and it went out from there. And now they're giving back to that place in Jerusalem. And they're collecting this. And so it's a call to give to the church. Specifically to this people in Jerusalem who are struggling and suffering in one way. But what's interesting what Paul says is that their first action was to give themselves to the Lord. So as much as he's excited about the giving, he's, he's saying that's actually a byproduct. Because what he's really excited about is that they are giving themselves first of all to the Lord. They're giving their lives to Jesus. In another text, he talks about living as living sacrifices, that we are transformed by the renewing of our mind and that our lives and our bodies and our thinking are transformed as living sacrifices. And here, it's like these people are are doing that. They're giving themselves to the Lord so much so that it's coming out and changing their giving and changing how they handle their money. Well, let's keep reading. Chapter 8, verse 6 to 9. Or, yeah, 6 to 9. Uh, He says this, So we have urged Titus, who encouraged your giving in the first place, to return to you and encourage you to finish this ministry uh, of giving. Since you excel in so many ways in your faith, your gifted speakers, your knowledge, your enthusiasm, and your love from us, I want you to excel also in this gracious act of giving. I'm not commanding you to do this, but I'm testing how genuine your love is by comparing it with the eagerness of the other churches. You know that the generous, you know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty he could make you rich. So he wanted the Corinthians to finish what they started. They had, it appears, started to kind of collect this offering, and then they were stalled. And he's saying, "Finish what you started. You began to do this. Now keep going." He wanted them to experience what the Macedonians had through giving. They had started preparing this gift, and then as you read Corinthians, you see the conflict that they had gone through, and oftentimes that's what the enemy likes to do, stir, uh, create dissension and conflict within the church. What does it do? It stalls the church from being the church. That's sort of what's happening here to the church in Corinth, and, and Paul is addressing these conflicts throughout this letter, and he's encouraging them, go back to what you started in this generous act of giving. Because you know what? It's a test of your love. And he's even comparing these churches to each other and saying, this is a test of your love of responding to grace. And in verse 9, I think it's the underlining motivation for it all. 
says, You know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though He was rich, yet for your sakes He became poor, so that by His poverty He could make you rich. And then in verse 10 to 15, he says, here's my advice. It'd be good for you to finish what you started a year ago. Last year, you were the first who wanted to give and you were the first to begin doing it. Now you should finish what you started. Let the eagerness you showed in the beginning be matched now by your giving. Give in proportion to what you have. Whatever you give is acceptable if you give it eagerly. Don't give according to what you have or, or, and give according to what you have, not what you don't have. Of course, I don't mean your giving should make life easy for others and hard for yourselves. I only mean that there should be some equality. Right now, you have plenty and can help others that are in need. Later, you will have, they will have plenty and can share with you when you're in need. And in this way, things will be equal. As the Scriptures say, those who gathered a lot had nothing left over. And those who gathered only a little had enough. So Paul is teaching them some really key principles about just, you know, give in proportion to what you have. Give generously. Give whatever it is that God puts in your heart to give. It's interesting is he doesn't actually give any guidelines. He doesn't give a set amount. He just says, you know what? Pray about it. Discern like just what, what is it that God is prompting in your heart? How is it that you understand this gospel of grace? And give out of response to that. It's powerful. You know, giving isn't showing God how much we can do for him. But it's a response to how much God has done for us. And it's this expression of love. And you know, we don't need bigger fundraising campaigns. We actually need a bigger image of God and His kingdom. And as we have a bigger picture of God and His kingdom, and as we have a bigger picture of what God has done in His grace and His extravagant love for us, our giving is to flow powerfully out of that. Well, let's... For a few minutes, just skip over to chapter 9 and look at a couple of things here. Paul continues. He says, I really don't need to write you about this ministry of giving for the believers in Jerusalem. For I know how eager you are to help. And I have been boasting to the churches in Macedonia that you and Greece were ready to send an offering a year ago. In fact, it was your enthusiasm that stirred up many of the Macedonian believers to begin giving. I like this. He's almost playing them against each other. He's, now he's saying to the Corinthian church, what I was telling the Macedonians about you actually started their giving. So, and it's this beautiful picture. And even in the, the drama that we had today, that Matthew text where it talks about don't let the left hand know what the right hand is doing. That's an absolute biblical truth because what, Paul, or what uh, Jesus is talking about there is he's talking about arrogance and pride. But in another place, Jesus also says, you know, don't, let, don't cover your, 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 the gifts of God and what God is doing. Put them on a hill so that everyone can see. If your motivation is to spur one another on to generous giving, as Paul's doing here, then he's declaring what they're doing and wanting to challenge them with it and sharing stories to inspire further giving. Then in verse 5, So I thought I should send these brothers and said, brothers ahead of me to make sure the gift you promised is ready. But I want it to be a willing gift, not one given grudgingly. Remember this, a farmer who plants only a few seeds will get a small crop, but the one who plants generously will get a generous crop. You must each decide in your heart how much to give. And don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure. For God loves a person who gives cheerfully. So he says there's a correlation between what you sow, in other words, what you plant, and what is produced. And that's a kingdom principle. And he's challenging that. 
And he says that there is a return. Now, it's not a financial return, and sometimes people teach that there's this financial return. We're going to see right at the end of this chapter that the return is a kingdom return of blessing that is quite remarkable, but it's not necessarily financial return in any way. And he says in verse 7, Decide in your heart what to give, not reluctantly or under pressure, but cheerfully. Okay, so quiz time. What's the acronym? JGSP. So here's what it means. J-G-S-P. As we look at this new covenant giving, here's the principle that Paul, I think, is sharing with us of how we are to give. We are to give joyfully. We are to give generously. We are to give sacrificially. And we are to give proportionally. And you see that throughout Paul's teaching. You see that throughout Jesus' teaching. You see that in some form that this J-G-S-P that is... The, the giving kind of mandate or the guideline as new covenant people. And so Paul is challenging them, look, look, it's not about the law of Moses. And we'll see next week, the tithe can be helpful, but it's not our guide. It's not our law, but it, it's something that, that we are to move beyond and actually realize that we are to give in a different way out of the spirit of God. We're going to see that, that uh, also in the weeks ahead about that giving starts with the local church and then goes beyond that. And that these are new covenant principles of grace. And how we are to give our money. That it's an act of grace and an expression of faith to the glory of God. And so what happens when you do this? Paul goes on, he says, there's a great harvest of generosity that will be produced in you. And then if you look at verses 11 to 15, In chapter 9, he says, Yes, you will be enriched in every way so that you can always be generous. And when we take your gifts to those who need them, they will thank God. So two good things will result from this ministry of giving. The needs of the believers in Jerusalem will be met, and they will will joyfully express their thanks to God. And as a result of your ministry, they will give glory to God. For your generosity to them and to all the believers will prove that you are obedient to the good news of Christ. And they will pray for you with deep affection because of the overflowing grace that God has given to you. Thank God for this gift, too wonderful for words. I want to just conclude by giving a tangible example of what these passages, these last verses, about what happens when we give generously, joyfully, sacrificially, proportionally, is that people give glory and thanks to God, needs are met, ministries are done, and people pray for you. That's what Paul says. He says, here's the result of if you do this. And uh, as a church, uh, over prior to the Christmas season during Advent, you'll remember that we do an Advent giving project every year, and we call the church to give beyond, beyond what you give to the local church, and to give generously to certain projects. And we did that again this year, and we, we said we wanted a, a goal of giving to MCC, we call them Buckets of Hope, and where we would give $10,000 to them to send buckets of relief buckets around the world. And then we also said with, with three global initiatives, both in, in Panama, Guadalajara, and also Turkey, that we wanted uh, to give, and we were hoping for $5,000 to each of those. So the goal, the, the giving goal for this was $25,000. Well, the giving that actually came in was $44,493. Like it far exceeded that. Like it was praise God for the generosity of God's people. What an extravagant gift. So here's a few pictures. I got a couple of pictures that just show a thing. This is in, first of all, this is in Turkey. And this is the, the building in the church in Gazi that, that they're developing. And the next picture shows a completed version of that room. 
Now, your money didn't create all that. Like, they're, they're, they've been working on this for a long time. But we're part of this ministry. If you go to the next picture, you see uh, this is the opening uh, service of that site in that church building in Gazi. And if you go to the next picture, this is a studio room that we're contributing to. And some of our Advent giving project money is going to because Hakan is doing uh, studio work. And he's doing, they're doing publications that are going out in that whole region of proclaiming the gospel. So this is what we get to be a part of, which is just a wonderful gift. Here's something that Hakan and Ashai, his wife is on the right. There's a translator and another member of the church in between. Hakan and Ashai say this, Thank you for your support through prayer, encouragement, and finances. It encourages us to continue in the ministry and to know that we are not alone. Relationship with you is so important to us. We praise God for your generosity, just like Paul said would happen. Let's go to the next picture. Next picture shows in Panama, and there's a discipleship school in Uvisa, and Giovanni and, and his wife Andrea and their family are in Brazil right now. Uh, the next picture shows the Wandia Center, which is in Panama City, and some renovations. And so some of our Advent giving project went to that. And again, the beauty of these three global projects is we were actually able to give them twice as much as we had intended. And what a blessing. And so the money is going to some of these projects. Abdulio, who's a leader, an indigenous leader down there, says this. It causes us such great joy to receive your message, messages and encouragement each time. They lift us from our difficulties at times. We thank you for the union between us as churches in Panama and Forest Grove Community Church. Glory to God. And then the last picture is a picture of the uh, Matthew Training Center team. And they are a team, as you know, that is in transition now with Trevor and Joan planning for retirement uh, down the road and a new team being formed. And so this is in Guadalajara. And our giving project also went to help support this new team. And Joan Goddard says this, Thank you so much to Forest Grove for the increase in support this year. What a blessed gift. We have always been well cared for by our church community there in so many more ways also. And we are so very thankful and humbled by the shared ministry we have enjoyed for these many years. And so glory to God, thanksgiving and prayers are coming from that. I'll share two more stories, and these are from uh, missionaries who serve uh, more locally here now. And this is from uh, Lori Peters, who's in our midst here. And Lori's still needing to raise additional funds, but she says this. She says, thank you so much for this huge blessing, for thinking of me and blessing me in the ministry God has called me to in this way. Please keep praying for protection for the evil one for me and my team and the people as we, that we are ministering to as Satan would love to destroy God's work. I am truly blessed to be a part of the ministry here in Saskatoon with newcomers and international students. Love in Christ with many, many thanks, Lori. And then lastly, Karen Block. And these last two are not part of our Advent giving projects particularly, but they're places and people that we contribute to as a church. So Karen has just returned home from Thailand recently. She's now part of our Broadway congregation. And she says this uh, as, her, as she transitioned home. Dear friends, your faithful and generous financial support continues to be a huge encouragement to me. In these final days, as I sort through my belongings and look through old photographs, recall many precious and wonderful experiences, my heart is filled with gratitude to God who has invited me to be a part of this wonderful world of growing his kingdom in Thailand and in the mainland Southeast Asia. That gratitude extends to you because your generosity and faithful giving has enabled me to live here, serve here, grow in my own personal faith, and encourage those who are working for God's kingdom all around me. So a thank you while it seems inadequate, is what I offer to you and to our God, Karen Block. And Karen's now serving out of a base here in Saskatoon. But these are just some of the realities of what Paul was teaching would happen as a church 
is a generous church as we learn to give joyfully, generously, sacrificially, and proportionally. And may God find us faithful in that for his kingdom's sake and for his glory. Would you stand with me and invite the worship team if they would come up at this time and I want to conclude in prayer. So Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for this remarkable church in Macedonia, these churches in Macedonia in this region of the world that Paul is giving testimony to. And at the same time, um, the church in Corinth that is struggling to how to kind of restart their giving. And Lord, in our lives, maybe we're in a place where we're not sure, we're tentative, we're hesitant, we're, we're needing a reboot, a restart of generosity in our giving in one way or another. And the enemy is just causing obstacles and distraction and discouragement in our life. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to look beyond that and to see your bigger kingdom purposes. And God, help us to take this caution well that we, that we do not do it in such a way that we blow trumpets and we don't do it arrogantly. And that's not what Paul's doing here, but we, we don't want to do that in our lives for pride issues or anything else. But we want to do it to give glory to you, to give glory to God, and to spur one another on to generosity and to extravagant love because of your love for us. And so, Lord, would you continue to transform us, to shape us and mold us into your new covenant church community that you desire for us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.